0: I'm so pleased to say Harvey Brace is back and has recorded another fantastic conversation for the Finding Fair Health podcast. In this episode, he speaks to Dr. Andrew Snell, an a consultant and public health doctor in South Yorkshire, with a wealth of experience at home and abroad. Andrew breaks some of the clinical and public health equity issues down for us and explains things in such an understandable, and I guess with that, a persuasive way too. What I particularly loved was how we brought clinical insight and stories into the discussion around the practical ways to tackle health inequity. This really packed a punch. Thanks to both Andrew and Harvey for this fab episode. We hope you enjoy it too.
1: Welcome to Finding Fair Health Podcast. I have the pleasure of chatting with Andrew Snell today. Andy has truly developed himself as a jack of all trades and has an incredible resume of work both locally and internationally. Andy has worked with the World Health Organisation, UK's Department of International Development, and helped develop policies both locally and globally. Aside from all this incredible work he's done at policy level, he also works on the front lines as an A&E consultant in Barnsley. So, Andy, what got you involved in both AE and public health? Um,
2: well, it was a journey, I suppose. Um, I Right through, probably preceding medical school, I had some exposure to public health, um, partly through international work. Uh, and also, my father was a physician, but also a public health um doctor i went abroad to uganda to work in palliative care in um for my sort of gap year as it was then sort of a diy gap year and inevitably you get to see um well not inevitably but you often get to see a kind of broader health system as soon as you land in a country with a um with lower resource lower ability to invest in health um and then through medical school i was lucky enough to intercalate in um, public health as a as a bachelor of science additional to the medical degree and that had very much an international component uh, again so it's kind of broad scope stuff and then as I qualified um, I always enjoyed being kind of a bit a, a generalist so my focus was sort of being a jack of all trades and a master of none And I think that's sort of something that's very important in in medicine generally we need to have a, a broad scope of of health because usually health is kind of quite a big rounded um, bag for for an individual or at a group or community or population level and so and, and yet we're we're not great at celebrating the kind of generalist specialties like GP and, and A&E so my, my intrigue in sort of holistic health and bigger health systems I think is one of the things that took me clinically into into A&E and I trained in A&E uh, and the other thing that I found um uh, helpful with a is it was easy to take anywhere so when I was looking mm. to carry on um, international work it was something that um, you can land in most countries and be helpful as an extra pair of hands if you've got um, A&E skills so so that took me to a number of countries and each time I went abroad and each time I came back I enjoy clinical work in AE, but I also was very exposed to um, the individuals that have um problems leading to their presentation in A&E that are actually much related to their wider circumstances um I was very um it, it was very evident and I think it is for most a e doctors most doctors in fact, but that there are parts of the health and care system in this country where we have the n h s which is fantastic and in um other countries that have a less well resourced um health system. Uh, there are parts of all of those systems that don't work as well as they could, don't make the best use of of, um, uh, of resources um, and don't take the best approach to addressing health in a way that is kind of preventable and sustainable. Uh, and so with those seeing both the individual level um, and the kind of wider health system level, especially going abroad and having a bit of academic background in public health and the frustrations of health systems not working as well, it slowly but surely took me to um training in public health. And um and for me, although in some ways it feels like A and E is the sharpest end of acutes and public health is the furthest up the yeah. other end, actually it's not. I think I think it's it's an area, it's, it's one of the specialties AE that really lends itself to public health insight. Um, so yeah.
1: That's super interesting. And you know, I can kind of see how the two handling but as you say when you first look at face value they seem almost polar opposite one's almost the grassroots yeah. and one is the ivory tower stuff um and you mentioned about the tremendous work you've done abroad and i uh, had a little nosy at your kind of portfolio and since the amount of countries you've been to and the great work you've done i'd be really curious to to hear about um when you've done all that work abroad ha- has there been any learning points from any country that you think we could apply here and that being for the many and also the health inequalities we see in this country
2: without question without question Um, so i I think this is related to this point but it's also related to the last point Um, the other thing that's very interesting about somewhere like a and e is it's kind of it shouldn't apologize for being a system failure service so it's where people come generally when um health has gone wrong disease control has gone wrong injury preventable injuries have happened um, and it is also, and again, this is a positive thing, and certainly is a privilege to work in A and E, especially with the public health outlook. Is a kind of the 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 one part of um, of the healthcare system which is a societal thoroughfare. So, kind of you know, open door. Quite rightly, anyone can turn up when things have gone wrong. Come in, but we should be looking on A and E as a sort of a real. It's where the light is shone upon what is going wrong in the in the yeah. wider community now there is versions of that it, although not every healthcare system internationally is the same as ours not everywhere has a kind of traditional A&E setup not everywhere has um, uh, an A&E uh, an emergency medicine specialty there are versions of that story in every country that we go to and uh, in every country in the world every country that has a health system um, and so you can see quite quickly what I think of as the universalisms of sort of health and medicine the thing that appeals to me most about public health and A&E are it strips kind of health and medicine they are two separate things in my view um back to the basics and at those basic level you can have um incredibly cost-effective kind of concepts to address health you can have you can uh, start right from getting the basics right first and the things that that you do do right and that are going to have a beneficial impact in those uh, in, in another country with you know minimal resources versus a country like the UK with lots of resources um, is uh, if you universally apply those basics then you're doing so much more than often we do all the time so we're really not great at getting the basics right for health uh, for getting the determinants of health, right and addressing those in a positive way for understanding the importance of health inequalities and how we should address those for all the right reasons. Uh, but actually what you can take from uh, the UK to other countries, just like you can take from other countries and health systems, uh, bring back from those countries back to the UK, are those universal truths and getting the basics right. And there are an awful lot of them. Uh, the, fa- the the idea that the majority of what determines a person's health Uh, is not uh, driven by access to good quality health care is really, really important. That doesn't mean that access to good quality health care and the concepts of universal health coverage aren't really, really important. They probably determine about 20% of our health but it's the social environmental economic financial industrial and commercial determinants that actually shape us more and much more so than you know how we're born the genetics we're born with and stuff Mm. and that is true whichever country you are in they are not only the things that determine whether we're going to be healthy and live a long life in good health or live a short life and lots of it out of good health they're also the things that determine inequalities so a lot of People are born into a world where they're much more likely, due to things like deprivation, and deprivation is not just financial poverty, it's much broader than that, and much more likely to live a shorter life and more of that life in ill health than someone who is born into more affluence and less deprivation. Those things are true in, in every single country. And indeed... The few examples that we do see in countries and health systems or local level, it doesn't have to all be national and international. But the examples we see of those being addressed are where we uh, create healthy societies, not ask individuals to behave healthily, but create healthy sure. societies Uh, We have uh, we use resources in an equal and equitable way. So we don't have to be the richest country to actually share resources out, ensure access to services, ensure access to good food, ensure access to kind of active environments and green spaces ensure we don't allow you know tobacco and alcohol and gambling to be driven upon our populations Um, you don't have to be the richest country to to get that right and you can be a very rich country like you know uk and us are good examples and get that very wrong so there's an awful lot of learning across the you you can forget about the continuum of kind of resource poor to resource rich countries and there are an awful lot of examples of places that get it really right and place to get it really wrong, that is well devoid of, of wealth and kind of health economy. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's, there, there are things that we can take from one country and drop into another. The only thing I'd say is you've got to understand the context. You know, you, you, yeah. you can't fly into a country and say, well, we did this back in this yeah, country. It's going to work well here in the same mm-hmm. way. The principles are the important thing. The principles you can apply in most populations, in most economic, social, environmental and health systems um, and inequalities and inequity is a very important or equality and equity is a very important principle therein. Um, But how you apply it, how you contextualise it, uh, that and, and how you bring it down to the detail that will ultimately impact the individual, not just the group or the population. That's really, really crucial to get right as well. And that needs local, local knowledge, local assets, all of those things, people to be involved in your decisions and not sort of thou shalt we will do to you. But anyway,
1: I mean, that's incredibly insightful. And I, I can tell you, you've got both the passion and the wisdom to at least share that passion well. And, you know, so I'm, there's so much more I'd, I'd want to push on that. But I, I was just thinking about, you mentioned about the great work that you've seen and that getting the basics is, is important. From your work abroad, was there any country that shook, kind of surprised you or that you thought, wow, you know, I hadn't thought of that, you know, and that's a really effective way to do something, you know, or something mm. that was a bit different to what you normally had been kind of taught as the kind of gold standard? That's a good question. Um, yes. I mean, it, the, the, there are examples
2: of from living in Scandinavian countries and in Denmark and um, where you quickly get to see, not that they've got everything right, and sometimes we dwell too much on certain countries and uh, it can alienate policymakers in this country, for example, because they sort of roll their eyes and say, okay, well, it's different here. But uh, so it's, it's selling these certain messages are, are crucial to understanding how they're applied to the local context, like I've said. But yeah. Scandinavia, for example, Um, This is going off piste a bit, but the idea that um, with a family moving over to um, Scandinavia, we didn't even contemplate um, owning a car and um, the idea that um having a getting hold of a bike was one of the easiest things you could consider owning a bike and not being concerned about it getting stolen even though they do get stolen because of yeah. the various kind of um, policies and insu- approaches to insurance they've put in place means that you're not nervous about taking that bike out yeah that Cycling a bike is so normal that mm. the infrastructure to um ride a bike around town even with a three year old in a trailer behind you um is so reassuringly safe um it's such that you know fifty percent of the population commute by bike around the capital city wow. it's always there and then seventy five percent of those people continue to commute even through very bleak and harsh winters not because they are a bunch they' tough Vikings (laughs) because it's all enabled and facilitated by the environment around you and not because we're putting posters up or having adverts that you see occasionally between McDonald's posters or anything that say, oh, cycling's good for you, but because the whole environment around you is enabled, affordable, accessible for cycling first, for public transport second, and for car ownership third or or down the line. That sort of... um, Understanding of living in that environment, and seeing it's not just about promoting cycling and saying cycling is cool, and you know yeah. having a a new cycle lane down this road. It's about sure. the whole system around it was a really a real eye opener for me from a public health intelligence. Yeah. You I guess almost that. like
1: sorry, I'd about to say yeah, almost like a like a cultural shift as well. You know, like as you said, the cultural norm that cycling is the the default as opposed to driving. But that needs park. enabling.
2: Yeah, the cultural yeah. shift is because everything around you makes it the easiest thing to do and the most affordable thing to do as well as it being really uplifting thing to do as well as it being a kind of family and community around it so um that shift happens i mean people will say well it was always going to be like that in copenhagen it wasn't in the 60s it was if i understand it correctly it was a hugely congested city with very high rates of pedestrian injuries including in kids and that led to a social uprising that was stopped killing our kids with cars and that led to just a, a, a sweeping policy decision to make cycling the normal and that that's led to all the bits that need to be put into place that that's really important and that that really helped me understand systems mm. uh, if you ever find chance to read the foresight report on obesity in the uk and um, there's a very interesting piece of work and i think the likes of harry rutter were involved in understanding the systems map around energy balance for an individual or a group or a population and if you look at that systems map it's highly complicated which scares you a little bit first <laughs> and then sure if you look at where a local, regional, national, international health system is active across that systems map, you realise our focus is always on individual behaviour and choice-based parts of the system. And then you see how huge the rest of the system is around energy balance and whether that's food production... Food uh, uh, supply of food and availability of food, whether it's about um, infrastructure to enable physical activity and active travel to be the norm, whether it's about social norms, all of those things, individual choice, which is what we tend to focus on in this country especially, but you know other countries as well, and 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 it's the easiest thing to do. Is only a tiny part of it, and it won't it won't
1: work without those other bits being enabled as well. So definitely, that that systems thinking is quite important. So that's really insightful, and um, I'm. Definitely going to look more into how that sh- shift happened in Copenhagen. Just going back to kind of your work as a public health doctor and an AE doctor, mm-hmm. i would be really interested to hear about the different health inequality examples you see whilst you're working in AE and the, the kind of common themes that you're seeing, and then how that varies compared to your work as a public health doctor. What is the kind of the themes that you're seeing there? Yeah. I,
2: again i think over the the journey and i'm 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 not saying i know it all at all at the minute i'm far from that and not <laughs> getting everything right there's lots more learning to do but sure. um it's there there are there are things that you see at every level which are incredibly relevant so one of the things i really enjoy about the work that i do is that one of the things that i um really enjoy about the work that i do at various levels is the same story, the sort of the, the the threads that are told. Whether you're seeing a patient in A&E, whether you're uh, working in public health for an acute trust, whether you're working at public health with the local government and policy development, or regional, national, or international. Uh, and there's there's two reasons that's true. Um, one is because it is. If we think of public health, we often think of, for example data and epidemiology, big aggregates. Um, yes. stuff. What it reminds you of in A&E is every single data point is an individual person or an individual person's experience of health.
1: Definitely. Definitely. And
2: uh, yes, you have to look at the bigger data to see what the major shift is and what the major trends are. But you can see that when you go down into A&E and see the individual people as well. You can recognise those trends because you're going to see more people in A&E who are from deprived communities, and that is going to play out into the data that more people who are from def- deprived local communities in your local population are going to um, be in A&E because they depend on an unplanned urgent and emergency system, failure system, uh, over the coherent primary care, early identification of disease intervene early uh, refer where you need to to secondary care all gets beautifully managed if you get one disease you stay with one disease you're going to live and carry on being productive versus the other people in the more deprived communities which deprivation includes poor access to um, health and related services who will Um, for all sorts of reasons, who will um, only present um, further on in their disease journey. Uh, They will have a much harder time of accessing services and um, to control that disease. And if it becomes a long term disease, like a cardiovascular disease, They are much more likely to get subsequent diseases on top of that, either more cardiovascular disease from a heart attack or stroke or a a different system disease, which is much more likely to um, cause a bother to them continuing to be productive and and have a, um, a productive affluent life or reach get to a productive affluent life. And they were already in a fragile state. So um, you see that all the time. So in a and I'm much more likely to see people who have insecure housing or are homeless. I'm much more likely to, be, to see people who have had very difficult um, childhoods um, and, and have gone on to be addicted to substances, whether that be tobacco or whether that be just harmful, even functional harmful alcohol, or whether that be um, gambling or whatever, uh, and I'm much more likely to send those people home to exactly the same circumstances because i haven 't quite found the time to address it sure. uh, so 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 we 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 see exactly the same things i I feel like I see exactly the same things in a and e in individual patients as I see as the key things that we need to address often fail to address in public health and the the reason that's well not in public health but in in the wider system, and public sure. health is about kind of a relatively small um, community capacity to address yeah. really big scope things. The reason this sort of stuff is important, including inequalities uh, and including when I'm being a medical doctor as well as being a public health person. Is that if we just think of healthcare, inequalities and deprivation, for example, inequalities aren't all about deprivation, but inequalities and deprivation are clinically relevant. So as a yeah. doctor, I'm trained to ask about past medical history, about family history, about what medications that person is on. And often, and you can see this physically, you can see this on a on our A and E Clarkin sheet. Yeah. Those bits, history presented complaint, family history, uh, past medical history, medications, allergies, all have a great big bit of room. The examination at the bottom, literally yeah. this <laughs> much space says social history. And yet yeah. we know that it is that is probably 50 to 60 percent of what is going to determine their health throughout life and has determined what has happened to lead them to need A&E. So we need to start switching that up a bit. I'm not saying yeah. we don't need to be in medicine very good at understanding the acute presentation and dealing with it. There's no point not treating the pneumonia. But yeah. if we do, don't realise that it's the smoking that's led to that pneumonia and going to lead to a poor outcome from it and a recurrence of it, it's, it's, it's the... Poverty that, that, that is, has led to maybe smoking or has compounded things further because they're under financial stress, which causes physiological stress. If we don't start to get better, both as medical practitioners, as service developers, as hospital and other NHS organization developers, by working with partners, by incorporating those things into the thing, into the decisions we make, then we won't be providing as good individual care as we, as we could. And we have no chance of managing this gradually increasing demand on the healthcare system or need for the healthcare system that we see and feel is unsustainable. Yes, the pandemic and... All of yeah. the geopolitical issues are making that worse, but that increasing demand was happening before the pandemic. We've returned sure. to that, We're less resilient now because of the pandemic. Yeah. And it is being driven largely by a stalling of life expectancy. But what's no. much more important than that in this country is a falling in healthy life expectancy. Yeah. And that means that people are living longer in ill health. Therefore, as a growing population with greater periods of our lives lived in ill health, we're going to have an unsustainable n- demand need for health services. So it's exactly the same things you see in A&E or in GP yeah. or in outpatients or that make the operation you're about to do on this patient more difficult than it could have been yeah. um, like we see and should be addressing in NHS. It's just the kind of micro, macro, you know, sort of picture. And that's, no. that's the beauty of That goes. That's true right up to international. And that's why I love also writing international policy because, it has to be cognizant of that continuum down to the individual and it has to be applied at the local level because you can write as many international guidance norms and standards exactly one day they have to change the local health system and the life of the individual or the local
1: social and economic system and the life of the individuals that engage in that system so i mean that's really insightful and and you just briefly touched about you know deprivation being a big a big factor involved and uh, our perception needing to change and how we look at a person and you know the patient and i don't know if you're happy to share but i know um you've been doing some great work in barnsley kind of around deprivation mm. would you be able to share a little bit about that and just kind of what yeah of
2: course areas? yeah yeah so i've been a public health council in an nhs so it's a it's a, it's a partnership role so it's a, it's a joint appointment between barnsley hospital um and barnsley council and they, they so I, I sit with so lo- local level public health is generally in local government it moved out of the nhs in 2013 it was great that it moved to local government actually much closer to public policy, which is where biggest impact is left a bit of a vacuum in the nhs and the nhs is a huge envelope has a huge impact and and potential bigger impact on health not just illness um Mm. so that 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 vacuum has caused a few bothers now through kind of um time and the story of integration there's a there's a few examples of where nhs organizations at various levels have introduced public health back in and in barnes it's done in a very positive way of being a real partnership piece so most of my focus even though i sit in a acute hospital is on that partnership work and how we develop the local health system and that needs an understanding of South Yorkshire health system and Yorkshire and Humber and national but we can do an awful lot at the uh, place level of, of, as we call it so in this case there's one local authority one hospital and then there's you know one primary care network actually in that case six neighbors. Um, what I've done over the since a point and, and with lots of support from other people is try and understand that try and um, assert that public health and the NHS is not healthcare public health in the old way it's not about necessarily focusing on nice guidance because that's really important but we have loads of capacity to introduce nice guidance into our clinical practice for example it's not about looking at sort of very specific kind of clinical pathways it's about bringing big public health into the nhs and dragging the huge nhs machine slightly closer to big public health because that's about using its envelope better so um that sounds all very hypothetical so then you have to get to go, okay what is within the grasp of an nhs organization or mm. an nhs service or nhs at different levels and that's what we tried to create with what we what i call a kind of three-tier framework for, for um improving public health and reducing health inequalities as an nhs organization and the first tier Um, which NHS is kind of quite good at if it's got some extra resources to do it, is introducing new services that are dedicated to address the drives of health inequalities. So every hospital, for example, should have a tobacco treatment team. It should know the smoking status of every patient and staff member that walks through its doors. And it should, without in not kind of a punitive wag your finger or kind of uh, sometimes back foot off away, it should engage that person in tobacco treatment because most people who smoke start when they're 14 years old Are subject to a multi billion industry pushing it upon them. And then we, when they're by the time they're 40, and we see them say, Oh, do you think you want to stop smoking? Mm -hmm. No, okay, go away. You've got to do it in a very different way. Yes. Whereas if I'm offering an antibiotic for pneumonia, I will kind of assert that I'm giving that antibiotic. So reframing all of that, but also making sure we have a service for tobacco treatment, for alcohol care. Yeah. for um, financial insecurity for housing insecurity uh, for families and the complexities they can have with social economic and environmental challenges through life that should be incorporated into the hospital either by nhs services the hospital owns or by um, funding and supporting in reach services like we do with early help so mm-hmm. that's tier one dedicated yeah. service to address the issues that people face that drive inequalities in the wrong direction. The second tier is really exciting and highly complex which is really acknowledging that okay only 20% of um what determines our life our healthy life is health care. 20% is massive. So get it right. Mm-hmm. At the moment we still are subject to the inverse care law yeah. the more deprived we are the greater the need for health care, but the less access we have to healthcare. Not the less good we are accessing it, the less access we have to healthcare. Um by we, I'm not talking about me, I'm yeah. healthy, thankfully. But and so all the services that a hospital delivers, or a primary care service delivers, or a community mental health or social care deliver are absolutely crucially important to improving health, which they do, but they don't do a very good job of of reducing health inequalities so how do you target those services to the people who need it most first and deprivation other inclusion groups is a good place to start and what we're seeing now is we're starting to develop routine measurement very simple hmm. routine measurement to the all the services that we deliver we then look at the gap so it's so um in who how we deliver services to more deprived communities versus less deprived and we can define those communities based on things like core 20 plus um, plus in the nh Chest and Public Health England idea. And then we say, if there is a gap, how are we going to close it? For example, we've just done some analysis on uh, continuity of care and maternity services. Yes, there's a gap. Where is that gap represented geographically? Where can we go and target some continuity of care uh, midwives so that actually tends to be based on uh, deprived communities we Mm. can start to close that gap through the services that we deliver so so the third tier is um the wider impact that that um the nhs or the organization has so um it, it has a huge financial envelope it spends lots of money obviously the nhs doesn't have as much money as we or it would like but it spends a lot of money and a lot of that money, if it is based in a deprived economy, can more of it can be spent in that local economy. It can mm-hmm. help to stimulate local business by, you know, how do we resilient get resilient local supply of some of the health technologies that we need, for example. Um, we also have a huge potential impact on social mobility locally. So are sure. we uh, developing uh, education into employment for the communities in our local population that tend to have less of those opportunities? Or are we tending to employ, as tends to happen, give greater access of employment to the people who have traditionally got those... And that's not to be unfair to people who, you know, they're still going to get jobs, et cetera. But it's to say that actually some of the things that are driving health down in this local population are deprivation, including employment deprivation. And we can, we have a hold when we see the link between that deprivation and health and how that's driving need for our services. We can do the right thing and help to manage demand by giving employment opportunities and social mobility and development opportunities to the right groups in the local population. And then the final one is we have a huge environmental footprint. Okay. Um, so yeah, how do course. we manage our waste? How do we get rid of desflurane, as the most harmful anesthetic gas? It's mm. not that good. You know, well, it doesn't. It's no no better than any of others. How do we? better manage our control of nitrous oxide how do we um so it's not all leaking out into the into the environment being wasted how do we start to reduce or rationalize our use of ppe now so more of it's um reusable how do we go back to reusable procedural packs for surgery like we used to have you know all of the things that we very and it's totally understandable because we kind of subconsciously kind of fell into this world where an incredibly harmful for the environment, um, way of working, NHS has a huge impact in that environmental harm, but it can also lead to more benefit. How do you switch your fleet to electric? Not yeah. too quickly, you know. We've got to do it slowly. Or how do you en- how do you enable what we were talking about earlier, like an active travel uh, kind yeah. of infrastructure, so that more people can get to work or even to their appointments um, by active means, or maybe they don't need to, you know? So so that so that anchor institution bit is the third tier and all of that has an ability to improve health for the whole population but also to reduce health inequalities mm-hmm. but, yeah
1: no no i mean it sounds fantastic and it, it sounds extremely rewarding when it's done right but i can imagine sometimes it's hard to see the success of a project um yeah evidently in the work you do but i'm sure it, it, it's happening and and this is a bit abstract but um you've got such wisdom and i'd love to kind of know oh, what what your uh, thoughts are You know, if you had a magic wand to really make a difference to health inequalities, and I know you've mentioned some really useful things about basically getting the basics right. But if you had a magic wand, considering South Yorkshire or Barnsley, what would be one big thing that you would either change or implement that you think would be important to tackle that?
2: That's a very good question because there are so many and I think it is important in my role in South Yorkshire to, one, not get too political because it's very easy to get into the political space here. And the other is to really look at the NHS because that that's kind of my role. There's a lot of people looking at, at the wider system. We've got a fantastic public health team in Barnsley that that do all the other stuff. And I, you know, do think that is hugely important. I think the one thing the NHS could do, the health and social care sector could do, but especially the healthcare sector, is um, that tier two, is, is, in a really understand that performance should be measured amongst other things by closing the gap in uh, the inequalities gap in the services that we deliver there there is nothing that for me excuses well, I mean, not, not excuses but but there is no reason that we shouldn't be doing that and mm. that includes everything from an individual direct kind of care episode so i'm a doctor and your patient i need to understand much more about your social economic and environmental circumstances to make the right clinical decision Because it might be that you, um, you know, two people, two patients, one after the other, both have exactly the same hip problem, both need a hip operation one person has a very secure financial situation um they've presented early because they're more health literate uh, and if they spend a bit more time waiting for that hip operation they're gonna be able to work from home they're gonna if they need it have um, sick pay they're not going to have had the problem for as long because they're uh, they've got better access to primary care they're going to have a greater chance of recovering more quickly because of their wider circumstances versus the other person in exactly the same clinical scenario but might well lose their zero hours income um, if I leave them a bit longer might well recover even less quickly because they're a delayed presentation they've got other risk factors uh, don't have the social network to support them around that can't work from home all of those things so the direct care component is really important every doctor nurse can can has a role in this but the actual way the system is administered to understand, incorporate measures of deprivation, for example, mm. when we're planning services and when we're monitoring services and consider closing the gap in delivery of services across that social gradient, that would be a huge and very elegant and beautiful achievement and is well within the grasp of the NHS because it has sure. control of how it develops.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I gave you a magic wand and you you actually proposed something quite feasible. So I I, I respect that. There you go. <laughs> and just, to, just as a final question, you've obviously had a long journey and a long family history of doing great work internationally and in UK and I'm really interested to hear what inspires you um is there any books or podcasts or resources that you've really found inspirational on your journey to where you are now that you'd like to recommend to anybody listening to this
2: there's loads this is it. so <laughs> uh, you'll gather that I'm not necessarily um cut from the usual cloth from the point of view of medicine well I don't know I don't know we're all different aren't that's good um, and when I read this the, the, you, it's easy to jump to the kind of very specific kind of professional podcasts I mean there are some really really good ones Health Foundation at the moment and since since the very beginning of the pandemic have a, series, have a podcast series which is fantastic and it's actually worth listening to right back to the beginning because you realise that so much of the learning we were going through in the context of a pandemic is hugely relevant now not just because of recovery but because yeah. it was always relevant but we had this yeah. stark light shone on health, determinants of health inequalities what we can do what we can do with shared data and information intelligence what we can do with cross-sectional working uh, and what's important and how actually you suddenly can get some political buy-in when it's sold in the right way like a pandemic but it's difficult to do it outside of an emergency response thing but there's lots of really good learning that podcast takes you well, well, well beyond pandemic response and is really, really good. Mm. However, <laughs> and there's other there's other reading sources like you know I, I look a lot at WHO guidance, I look a lot at King's Foundation stuff, um, and I think there's there's uh, Ada Lovelace, all of those stuff. There's some really powerful stuff on. Big health and how it's relevant to what anybody does in the health and care sector. However, I do. I think it's Obama, the wise older Barack Obama, who mm. said that um, he's every single book he's read has influenced how he behaves and proceeds oh. in anything from you know national administration to life. And most of the books he reads are fiction. And, and I I don't think if we we don't need to draw inspiration only from our professional areas so yeah. um, I love books I love kind of magical realism books like um, Garcia Marquez and 100 uh, Years um, Solitude and how that uh, uses magical realism to kind of force us away from um, our stereotypes stepping out of the kind of we're very good as human beings at sort of assuming that when we're a doctor talking to a patient we know more about their health than they do mm. yes we know more about some elements of it but actually yeah. they know more about how they're experiencing health and we need to understand that because that is when it takes us to those wider
1: circumstances that need considering some fantastic reading suggestions from you there andy and i just want to say a massive thank you for participating today i've i've personally taken so much from it and i hope that listeners who have tuned in have learned something new and will think differently and hopefully you've inspired them in the same way that you have definitely inspired me today thank you
0: So that was Harvey and Andrew having a fantastic conversation about tackling health inequity. I took away lots from this episode and found Andrew super easy to understand and follow. I will try and channel my inner Andy, I think, when I'm next talking about the problems and solutions in tackling health inequity. Please do check out lots of the resources discussed in the episode in the show notes and do join us for our next episode of Finding Fair Health.